Amen. Amen. Um, I've told you before, I think, about when I was a kid, about my numerous ambitions about what I wanted to do when I, you know, when I grew up. Um, I wanted to be a professional wrestler. I've told you all about Switchblade Sanchez. Um, for a while, I thought that I wanted to join the Marines. Uh, I was tired of my parents telling me what to do, so I thought, I'll just join the Marines. That'll fix them. Uh, and, and don't get me wrong, man, I love America, but you don't want me being the last line between you and ISIS, all right, I promise. But one of my ambitions was to be a pizza delivery guy, and I can say that I checked that off of my bucket list. I worked for Domino's for, I don't know, two, three years, something like that, that's where Amy and I met, and uh, the best thing never happened to me while I was there, without a doubt, but I can remember... Uh, distinctly, distinctly, uh, I would go to work, and I would usually go to work at four or five in the evening and work until Domino's closed, and I would turn the radio on to 900 a.m. That's WYCV out of Granite Falls, North Carolina, Gospel 9, and I would listen to preaching a lot, and Gospel 9 is just a local a.m. radio station, and Bless their hearts, literally any preacher with a pulse can get uh, a show on there, and some of them may not have had a pulse, and you'd, you'd hear, uh, uh, we'll just say a lot of really interesting preaching, all right? But usually every night, right as I would start uh, my shift, 5 o'clock, I think it was David Jeremiah came on, and then 5.30, I know Adrian Rogers came on, Love Worth Finding, from 5.30 to 6 on WYCV, Adrian Rogers would come on and preach. And as far as I know, uh, that show probably still comes on Gospel 9 at 5.30, but I remember one story that he told so vividly that I can still remember exactly where I was at when I heard it. I can almost, I'm pretty sure I could take you to the house I was delivering to the night I heard him tell this story. And I want to tell you this story tonight. The story is that a young pastor goes to pastor a new church. And the church is struggling bad, like just a few months from shutting its doors. They are in bad, bad shape. They need revival. And Aaron, Rod- Aaron Rodgers, not the wrong one. Adrian Rodgers said, he, he came out this week, said he don't even believe in God. But Adrian Rodgers said that the young preacher went to the church and said, listen, y'all need revival. You're going to shut your doors. And they said, preacher, we know, but we don't know how to have revival. So the young preacher said, here's what you do. He said, I want y'all to take a week and I want you to think about the very worst sinner in town. And you come back and you tell me that person's name, and we're going to pray that person into the kingdom of heaven. And then when God saves that guy, then you get so excited, other people will be saved and we'll have revival. And they said, preacher, that's crazy enough to work. So they go off for a week, and they think about the worst sinner they can think of, and they figure out who it is. And they come back to the preacher, and they say, we've got his name. He said, okay, give me the guy's name. They said, well, preacher, you don't understand. You don't know. You're new in town. You just don't know how mean this guy is. Kids are afraid of him. We make sure that our women stay away from him. He said, no, 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 we're going to pray for God to do the impossible and for God to save. And I said, preacher, you just, listen, you really don't get it. There's no doubt in anybody's mind that this guy is the worst sinner in town. He said, no, tell me who it is. I said, preacher, listen, you don't understand. He's so bad that he has a bullet still in his leg from when his girlfriend shot him for cheating on her with his wife. I said, he's that bad. And Adrian Rogers went on to tell the story that he finally got the name, the preacher finally got the name, and they prayed and prayed and prayed. And sure enough, this guy comes hobbling in with a bullet in his leg and gets saved, comes to Jesus. The church has revival, and it's this incredible outpouring of the Spirit of God. And the point is, pray. You never know what God might do, right? I wonder tonight how many of y'all are like that struggling church. You know God tells you to pray for the lost. But it's been a long time since you've really passionately prayed with a burden for people that need Jesus. And I wonder how many of you maybe have been praying for somebody for a long time. 
You've been praying for a husband, a child, whoever it might be in your life that you want to see them come to the Lord. You've been praying for a long time. And maybe tonight you're discouraged, just wondering, you know, what's the point? Many of us, and I, I want to say this to people my generation, thereabouts, and maybe a little bit younger, many of us have never seen really what the power of prayer can do in a church. Many of us have never been gripped by the urgency of eternal realities around us. We've never really developed a passion for what God could do in answer to our prayers. Well, tonight, I want to look in a passage of Scripture that the Lord kind of led me to just in my regular Bible reading a few weeks ago, and I felt like we needed to go through it tonight. It's in Genesis chapter 18. We're going to begin reading in verse number 16. Genesis chapter 18 and verse number 16. And as we look at this passage, all I'm going to tell you tonight, I'm not going to tell you anything you hadn't heard a million times before, I'm sure. But I'm just going to tell you that whoever that person is, and you put their name on a card last Sunday night, I just want you to hear from me this evening that you can pray for that person with passion. You can pray for that person with faith. You can pray for that person with boldness. And church, there's no telling what God might do. I want to show you that in Genesis chapter 18, verse 16. Let's stand as we consider what God has to say to us tonight. Genesis 18, 16. The Bible says, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. So immediately you know where this is going, right? And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The Lord said, If I find it Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. You can be seated tonight. Look forward to seeing how God's going to use his word in your life. Now, this passage of scripture that we've read tonight, it's one of those Bible stories. It's, it's kind of, you know, the B team of Bible stories. It's a story that most of us know when we read it, but it's not one that necessarily stands out in the front of our mind. And I think maybe the reason this story that we kind of know, uh, it, it, the reason it may not be very familiar to us or it may not jump out to us is because it comes to us in the Bible sandwiched between two really massive stories. 
In the beginning of Genesis chapter number 18, we read about Abraham and Sarah getting this visit from these three strangers that they treat as if they are God himself that come to confirm to Abraham and Sarah the promise that she will conceive a child and that within a year's time she's going to have a child and they're going to name that child Isaac. And of course, that's exactly what happened. And most Bible scholars look at that and and they call that a Christophany, which is to say this is a pre-Bethlehem incarnation of Jesus Christ. In other words, here in Genesis 18, Abraham met Jesus before Jesus was born. Think about that. That's big stuff. And of course, we know what happens here in Genesis 19, right? We read about Lot who has settled into the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we read about how God in his judgment pours out his wrath on those stories, how uh, Lot's family is saved just in the nick of time, and we know about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah here in Genesis 19. But sandwiched between these two incredible stories of the manifestation of God and his confirmation of his covenant promises and this manifestation of God's wrath and judgment against sin is one man who is praying for the lost. One man who is on his face before God, speaking to the Lord, saying, God, show mercy to those who need you. And I read this just in my regular Bible reading a few weeks ago and knew we'd be talking about our ones, these people that we want God to save. And I thought how important it is for us to understand the urgency of the need that drives us to pray, to say, God, do what only you can do. So tonight I want you to think about this passage of Scripture. I'm going to ask you, what comes into your mind when you hear the word sodomite? Probably stuff that makes you want to scrub out your brain with bleach, right? But here's Abraham, the father of the faith, the man that the Bible calls the friend of God. Here's that man praying for those people. Think about how incredible that is. That Abraham intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah. And he goes to God and says, God, show mercy to them that their name is on his lips. And as I saw Abraham's heart and Abraham's burden, I thought to myself, God, grant it that that would be the burden of our church. God grant it that if nobody else has that burden, that I would have that burden, that I would be the kind of person that labors faithfully in prayer on behalf of those that have no hope apart from the grace of God in the face of his judgment. And so what I have prayed for is that God would develop in our church this kind of culture of prayer. And I want to just take this text and overlay it on our church and overlay it over your life and the people that you want to see God save around you, kind of in your orbit, and just talk about what it means to pray for your one. How do you go to God for your one? And I want to try and talk about that by answering three questions that, that I think are driving Abraham as he prays. And the first question is this. What's the problem? What's the problem? What is it that drove Abraham to pray? You, you get this sense that Abraham is uh, kind of experiencing this unusual sensation of urgency, even panic, as he talks to the Lord. Do you notice how he, he comes to the Lord and he says, Lord, I'm just dust and ashes, and I can't believe I'm saying this to you, but will you do this? And, and God is almost like he, he's almost apologizing for the way that he's praying, even though he's being bold and even though he's praying with great conviction. Why does he have this urgency? What's the problem that's driven Abraham to pray? Well, the problem that's driven Abraham to pray, uh, of course, is the, what the Lord's told him about the pending destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know, I'm sure, from the story of Abraham, that Abraham has a vested interest in the city of Sodom because that's where his nephew Lot lives. 
And in Abraham's mind, this is what's driving the story. In Abraham's mind, I'm sure he understands that the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, those cities are wicked and that God should destroy them. But how could, how could God destroy Lot, who is righteous, in the middle of the wicked? And it may be that Abraham's kind of overestimating Lot's righteousness since they've been away from each other for a period of time. But how could Lot perish? How could righteous Lot and his family perish with the wicked? And he can't reconcile the righteousness of God in judging Sodom and Gomorrah and the righteousness of God in seemingly judging the innocent alongside of the righteous. And so what does he do? He takes his burden to God. He says, Lord, I don't see how this comes together, so God, let me bring my burden to you. Why does he pray? He prays because he understands God's judgment. He prays because he understands that there are cities out here that are full of people that if something doesn't change, God is getting ready to visit his wrath on them. And friends, at the risk of sounding like a hellfire and brimstone preacher, we have lost our understanding of the judgment of God, have we not? That song they played just a moment ago, Brethren, We Have Met to Worship. You know, there's a verse in that song that says, Brethren... See poor sinners round you, slumbering on the brink of woe. The songwriter said, death is coming, hell is moving. Can you bear to see them go? Then it gives that refrain, brethren, pray. Brethren, pray, and holy manna will be showered all around. What is our answer for a world that is facing the judgment of God? Church, the answer is the same answer that Abraham had. The only thing that we can do is to take sinners who are facing the wrath of God to the God who is angry at their sin and say, God, have mercy. And that's what Abraham is doing in this passage of Scripture. So please understand tonight that if the Bible is true, and if we are people who believe that the Bible is true, then those names that you wrote on these cards, that these are people whose names are not written in the book of life, and that one day the judge of the universe will open his books, and he will look, and he will not find their names. And even though it could be that already they're experiencing some of the judgment of God because of their sin, maybe in addiction and maybe in their family, maybe in their health or maybe in their money. But if the word of God is true about our righteous God, then they are just now beginning to experience the opening chapters of the story of God's wrath. And there's an unfolding eternity awaiting each of them. That hell is real and they are today one day closer to being in that terrible place. And what can we do? We can pray. We can pray and say, God, save. But it's not just God's judgment and wrath that drives Abraham to pray. It's also God's goodness. He wants to see God save. That's why he comes to the Lord kind of with this, I guess, this, this, this bargaining chip. He says, Lord, I know Sodom and Gomorrah are wicked, but what if you found, let's just say hypothetically, Lord, if you found 50 people there, and the Lord says, well, you know, if I find 50 righteous people there, I won't destroy it for their sake. Well, Lord, I don't want to beg the point, but what if we found 45? And then he goes on, 40, 30, 20. He gets all the way down to 10 righteous people. Why is he doing that? Because he understands that God is a God who has a heart to save. That God is a God who loves to save, as we talked about last week, that he's a, heart, a God whose heart is bursting with joy at rescuing the lost. It's what God loves to do. Friends, when we pray for our ones, we are not asking God to do something he really doesn't want to do. We are joining with him in what he loves to do. And we are saying, Lord, let me join together with you as you save the lost. The Apostle Paul wrote in the book of 1 Timothy, in chapter number 2, these great verses it says, first of all, then I urge that prayers or the urgent supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, 
for kings, for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Then Paul said, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Then he said, he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's why we pray. Because God really loves to save. Because God really has a heart that is full of love for people that do not deserve His love. We pray because the cross is an expression of God's heart to save. We pray because the empty tomb is an expression of God's power to save. But we can also pray like Abraham does, that we now, tonight, are proof of God's saving love. Have you ever thought about this? And if you look in... Back to what God says about Abraham in verses 17 and 18. It's almost as if Abraham's prayer here is reflective of God's purpose for him and what would become the nation of Israel. Look in verse 17 of Genesis 18. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Notice, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. God knew that Abraham, through the promises that he had made to Abraham, that Abraham and his family would grow into a mighty nation, and that nation would be the channel through which God would bless the world. And we know because we've read the rest of the Bible, we know from Galatians chapter number 3 that the promised seed, that that points to Jesus, that Jesus himself is the blessing that came from Abraham that blesses all of the world. But here God is almost saying to them, look, look, Abraham, you need to know about this because it's your purpose to bless the world. Do you realize today that you and I serve the same purpose as children of Abraham? And the Bible says that in Galatians 3, that if we have believed in Christ, if we believe the gospel with the same kind of faith that Abraham had, that we are now the sons of Abraham, welcomed into this family that is designed to bless the world by proclaiming the message of Jesus. You know, that's what God has always been doing in the world. He told Adam and Eve, he said, you be fruitful and multiply. They fell into sin. God says, I'm going to send a promise deliverer. And he finally, in Genesis 12, narrows that down to one family. And he says to Abraham, Abraham, it's going to come through your family. I'm going to send this promised seed. And through you, I'm going to bless the world. And then God sent Jesus, who is that promised seed that blesses the world. And he says to his disciples before he ascends in Matthew 28, what does he say? He says, as you are going, take the gospel with you and make disciples of all nations. Teach them to obey whatever I've commanded you and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. He said, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. In Acts 1.8, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. The Lord said, you people go as my followers and you go bless the world. How do we bless the world? Part of the way that we bless the world is through praying for the world. That's why God told the people of Israel way back in the Old Testament, he said, you are going to be a kingdom of priests to me. You're going to represent me to the world. And that's why if you read Revelation chapter 4 and 5, the saints of God are there in heaven saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, for you have redeemed us from every nation, every kindred, every tribe, and every tongue, and you have made us a kingdom of priests unto our God. What does that mean? That means today that you and I are the representatives of God in this world who make God known to a world that needs Him, and we take the burdens of this world to God in prayer the way a faithful priest should. That's God's purpose for us tonight, that we are a people who take the needs of the world to God and take the message of God to the world. That's what he's put us here to do. And so there's that big theological idea here, but why wouldn't Abraham do this? Personally, why wouldn't Abraham pray for Sodom and Gomorrah? Think about this. To, to him, I'm sure that the salvation of Sodom and Gomorrah looks impossible. And you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It probably feels impossible to you too. But let's call it what this is. Why in the world is Abraham of all people the one praying for them? 
Who was Abraham before God came to him? Who was he before God saved him? He was nobody. Down in Ur of the Chaldees, worshiping the moon or whatever it was he was doing. And God comes to him and says, Abraham, you come and follow me. And Abraham said, okay. And God had changed him. And Abraham went forward apparently with an understanding, if God can do that for me, he can do that for anybody. If he can do that for me, he can do it for Sodom and Gomorrah. If he can save me, then why would I not pray for this one? Because if his grace can transform me, then this ain't going to be any problem. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you something God's been teaching me the last, I don't know, a few months, but especially the last few weeks. You ever notice that it seems like the closer you get to Jesus, the more you know about how terrible you are? (laughs) That growth in godliness really just seems to be understanding more about your sin and how much you need grace. And then the more you understand more about your sin, the more you realize how good he is. And then the better he seems to get, the more you realize how terrible you are, and it just keeps going and going and going. I'm going to tell you something I've realized. I've realized that throughout the New Testament, the people that oppose Jesus the most are people just like me. Religious people. And that's what I was before the Lord saved me. Raised in a preacher's home, knew how to play the part, knew how to fill the role, knew when to raise my hand, knew when to cry, knew when to come to the altar, knew how to do everything in church. And I was a hypocrite, self-righteous, self-reliant, thinking I could do it all. People like that are the least likely people to ever experience the grace of God. And it's dawned on me over the past few weeks that if God could save me, he could save anybody. Because those drunks and those drug addicts, people like that, those are people that realize they're in a mess and they need God. But people like me, we're so blind in our stupidity and our sin and our self-righteousness that we very rarely come to grace. And thank God if he can save me, he can do it for absolutely anybody. And so if nothing else, understand tonight, it is by the grace of God that you have a name to put on a card and it's not your name on the card. That you have a one and you're not somebody's one. There could be somebody in church tonight praying for you saying, God, save them. God, show them their sins. Show them Christ. God, bring them to you. But by God's grace, you are here tonight. You have somebody you want to see saved and you can come to him and say, God, do for them what you've done for me. What greater proof of the grace of God is there than that? And what should drive us to pray more than that? What's the problem? Well, the problem is that God is a God of wrath and that sinners have sinned against that wrath and that they need to experience God's goodness. Well, what's the plan, Abraham? That's the second question. What are you going to do about that? He said, I'm going to pray. Abraham said, I'm going to pray. That's the only plan that I've got. He said, I'm going to take, through my prayers, I'm going to take the needs of sinners to the God that sinners need. That's Abraham's plan. Church, we speak, Lord. Your servant here. Church, we can't do it all. We can't. We can't pray. We can't do everything, but we can pray. But I think that maybe churches like ours... We've been guilty of doing everything but pray for too long. I'm not picking on our church. I'm just saying this is, this is everywhere. It's, it's every church I've been around and watched and tried to you know, sometimes even learn things from. We, we do everything but pray. We brought in our smoke machines you know, so we can look like a Holy Ghost nightclub. And we've tried to pack the pews on God and Country Sunday, and we've given away Xboxes. Amy and I know a church back home where a few weeks ago their worker, or about a year ago now, their, um, their children's workers, they swallowed a goldfish because they had however many in attendance. I'm not talking about a goldfish cracker either. I'm talking about sushi. 
That's what this, this is how we're going to reach the lost. And so we've got every gimmick and trick of the trade. And so we don't need to pray. We don't need to pray. Abraham said, if God's going to do this, I better pray. And what I love about that tonight is this. That was Jesus' strategy. If you read Matthew chapter 9, I'll be preaching about this on Sunday morning in a few weeks. There's a scene where Jesus looks out over the crowds of people. The Bible says that he has compassion on them, right? He has compassion on them that were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He said, what do you do? You pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. I've never heard it said any better than the way A.C. Dixon said this. A Baptist preacher from Shelby, North Carolina, um, ended up pastored after Charles Spurgeon died, ended up pastored the church he had pastored in England. And you see right there, when we depend upon organizations, we get what organizations can do. When we depend upon education, we get what education can do. When we depend upon man, we get what man can do. But when we depend upon prayer, we get what God can do. And you can't say it any better than that, can you? That we've put our confidence in anything and everything. But if we want to see God do what God alone can do, then at some point we better hit our knees. Say, God, do what only you can do. And so I love the image of Abraham here. Such a picture of Christ, isn't it? That he's standing in for sinners. A city of people that are doomed under the wrath of God, that don't know to pray, don't know how to pray, don't comprehend their need to pray. But here's Abraham who loves God and who loves them, standing in for them, lifting up their their names to him before the throne of God. And do you realize, as we sang a little while ago, that's exactly what Jesus did for you, and that's what he's still doing for you. He's still calling out your name before God. He's still pleading the merits of his sacrifice for you. He's still interceding for you. And today, as God's people, we get to follow in his footsteps and say, Lord, save my one. Save my one. They need you. Lord, I bring them to you. We get to show the life and the love of Jesus to them. So what's the plan? Because here's, here, here's how this works. I know I've been a Baptist long enough. I know how this works. You come in here and somebody preaches a sermon about need to pray for your lost, need to pray for the lost. And what we're going to do is we're going to have an invitation and you're going to feel guilty. So you're going to come and you're going to pray for like 30 seconds until you feel better. You're going to say, Lord, I've been pretty terrible at this, so please forgive me and save so-and-so. And then you're going to go home and watch The Bachelor or whatever comes on on Sunday night and forget about it. Because that's what we do, right? That's what we do. How can we be focused? How can we be focused and intentional in prayer? I forgot my, I forgot my goodies. I'm going to tell you five things that we're going to be doing at Sharon Heights over the next few weeks. First, some of you have already gotten your these little books. How many of you grabbed one of these on the way in? You saw them out there and you said, hey, there's free swag out there. I'm just going to get it. All right, well, I want every one of you to get one of these on your way out, okay? And all this is on the front, you can judge this book by its cover. It says 30-Day Prayer Guide, and at the bottom it says, who's your one? What this book is, is 30 brief devotionals. Each day is tied to a passage of Scripture. And then there's just a really, really brief devotional type prayer for you to pray for that person you're praying for. And what we're going to do as a church family is we are going to pray for 30 days together from February 1st to March 1st. That's exactly 30 days this year because it's leap year and there are 29 days in February this year. So beginning from February 1st to March 1st, we're going to go through this together as a church family. So I want you to grab one of these, and I want you to earnestly pray, earnestly pray through these verses of Scripture and through these devotionals for the person 
that you're praying for. And if you're not going to do it, don't grab one. Just leave it for somebody that will do it. I mean, really. We paid like 10 bucks in shipping to get them here, so, you know, don't, don't waste your money, right? Second, second, we're going to do something that Baptists really just don't do really great, but the Bible tells us we should do and is appropriate in a time of desperation and urgency. We are going to fast together. Doesn't that sound exciting? And Brother Jesse, I was hoping you would tell us that we are going to get to miss some meals. Well, here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm going to have this sign-up sheet on this clipboard out on the board as soon as service is over. And all I'm asking you to do is skip one for your one. And what you've got here is those 30 days from February 1st to March 1st, broken down for three meals a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. And what I'm asking each of you to do is just to pick a meal on one of these days and say, I'm going to skip that meal, maybe breakfast, maybe lunch, maybe supper. I'm going to skip that meal. And instead of eating my supper, I'm going to go to God for that season, and I'm going to pray. And I'm going to ask God to save my one and the ones of others so that I'm praying that over that month from February 1st to March 1st, that every meal there's somebody from our church family that's not eating but is spending time fasting in prayer. Now, I could just come up here and say, y'all don't eat from February 1st to March 1st. Jesus fasted for 40 days and you should too. I'm not going to do that. Well, hey, let's ease into this thing. And I know some of you, because of medication or whatever else, you, you can't do that kind of physical fast. Maybe there's something else that you could fast from. If nothing else, take time to pray. Eat and pray. Do both. Thank God. If you can't fast during these 30 days, here's what you do. Pray for your one every time you say you bless it. There you go. Maybe you could do that anyway. So I'm asking you, this month, from February 1st to March the 1st, Skip a meal here or there. Maybe you want to do one. Maybe you want to do two or three different days, different weeks. But say, I want to do my part to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I am hungry for you to save. Lord, I am hungrier for a work of God than I am the food that I need to live. Number three, there's going to be a natural break in our discipleship training schedule on the last Sunday of the month, on February the 23rd. And what we're going to do during our DT time is I'm going to ask all of our classes just to come in here at 5 o'clock and spend time in prayer for our ones. It's a special church-wide prayer meeting to go to the Lord and say, Lord, we're praying together for our ones. Fourth, as I hope you did in Sunday school this morning, I want you to make it a point to pray for your ones in your classes, whether it's Sunday school, whether it's DT. I want you to pray together as you begin your classes Pray for your ones. And fifth, and maybe easiest and most simple, like we talked about probably last week, just pray for them every day. Pray for them every day. And as I've thought about my one, my next-door neighbors, I've thought about him. As soon as he comes to mind, whatever I'm doing right then, I'll pray for him. I did it when I was walking down the steps a few minutes ago to come to the sanctuary before church. He crossed my mind, and I said, Lord, you know he needs you. I want you to save him. And I've been praying every time I think about him. God, save him. God, save him five things that we're going to do. So, what's the plan? The plan is to pray. What's the problem? The problem is sinners are going to face the judgment of God unless they experience the grace of God. Third, what's the point? What's the point? Does this really do any good? Genesis 19, if I'm coming here to tell you tonight to pray for the lost because God saves, Genesis 19 kind of makes it hard to argue that point. Because you know how the story of Sodom and Gomorrah ends, right? It ends in a you know, smoldering pile of ashes. That's how it ends. So did Abraham fail? Did Abraham fail? Was his praying not enough? Was, you know, did, should he have done something more? I'm going to tell you no. Here's why. 
Look in Genesis 19. This is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Look in verse number 15. Genesis 19, verse number 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. As they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or step anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Now, I know when we hear that passage and we preach this story, most of the time we're talking about how trashy Lot is. And rightfully so. But if you notice these verses of scriptures, this is not, the, 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 the overwhelming picture here is not of the greatness of Lot's sin, but it's the greatness of God's mercy. Do you see the Bible tells you that? The Bible says that God was merciful to him. Why? Because in the middle of that destruction, the one that Abraham was burdened for, God sent an angel and grabbed him by the arm and said, come on, we're going. Did Abraham fail? No, he didn't fail. Because God went in and rescued the one that he was burdened for. Friends, that's why I'm telling you today that we can pray with this kind of boldness that our God who saved Lot, for whatever reason, why did he save Lot? Our God who saved Lot still saves, still rescues people. Right as it seems when it's too late, he still loves to come in at the last minute. And so what does Abraham do? Abraham, by faith, seems to understand that, and he prays boldly in a way you get that sense, right, that Abraham's praying, saying, Lord, I can't believe I'm saying this. Lord, I can't believe I'm going to ask you this, but would you please, please do it? And does the Bible not command us to pray boldly? Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15 asks us, commands us to come confidently and to come with boldness before the throne of grace and to present our needs to Him. So what I'm telling you today, as you think about this person that you're praying for, this person that you want to share the gospel with, as you think about your one, what I'm telling you to do tonight is this, you ought to pray like God's promises are true. You ought to pray for this person as if God's heart really is full of joy to save. You ought to pray for them the way you would want somebody praying for you if you were still lost. You ought to pray for them as if God's power knows no limits. You ought to pray for them as if their heart is in His hand because I assure you it is. You ought to pray for them like hell is still real and it's still hot. You ought to pray for them as if God really loves to save. And all I'm asking you to do tonight is, is really to match your prayer to His promises. And what is the promise of God? The promise of God, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 20, is that our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above anything that we could ever ask or think. That means that I cannot describe to you tonight what God could do through the faithful prayers of His people because I can't imagine it. I can't. It's not possible for me to even touch it. And it's not possible for you to touch it. So our prayers, they're just simply not big enough. And they never will be big enough because God's power so greatly eclipses our ability to pray. When we went to Gardendale a couple weeks ago and Johnny Hunt spoke, he said something that evening that really, really struck me. I think we've got this quote up there. He said, we've lost the capacity to dream that God could do for our friends and family what he has done for us. I heard that and that so convicted me that we've lost our capacity to dream that God could do for other people, for this person, for my one, what he did for me. And I thought, Lord, you're exactly right there. I have lost that capacity to dream. But when we pray, 
all we should be doing is we should be letting the Word of God shape our dreams, and then we should be taking those dreams to God in prayer, saying, Lord, do the impossible. Save and work. So tonight, we're going to finish up. We're going to have a hymn of invitation. I'm going to ask you all just to come and pray for your one and for the ones of others. But here's what I want to ask you tonight. Honestly. Honestly. If you knew tonight that God would answer for you one prayer immediately, exactly the way you prayed it, if you knew that you came to this altar tonight and you prayed for it, asked for anything you wanted, and you prayed for it, and you knew that by the time you got up, there would be a phone call on your machine, there would be a message that was texted to you that you had gotten what you asked for. Somebody called and said, I can't believe this has happened. If you knew that God would answer for you any one prayer immediately and exactly the way you prayed it, what would you pray for? What would you pray for? I can't think of anything better to pray for than for Him. I can't think of anything more urgent. I can't think of anything more important. I can't think of anything more eternal than to pray for Him. And I know that I'm praying to the same God who went and grabbed Lot by the arm and said, come on, we're getting out of here before you get toast. And I know I'm praying to the same God who gripped my heart one Wednesday night and saved me by His grace. And I'm praying to the same God who sent His Son to a cross. And I'm praying to the same God who conquered death. That's the God we're praying to tonight. And so as our musicians play, I'm just going to ask you if you feel led just to come and we'll close out by praying together for our...